One Muddy Morning Rebel Harmony chases after her giant stuffed owl, Hedwig. She returns pitter-pattering bare feet on the wood. I hoot several times, and then toss the plush white bird into the kitchen. The 18-month-old runs after it with glee. This after I've been inundated with Elmo, Big Bird, Snuffy, Big Panda, Emilio Kitty, and Excuse Me Penguin. I'm a human pile of soft stuff with bright colors and eyes. Sometimes this happens immediately after the morning ritual. Pick up my daughter and sing her the ABC song while calming her from her crib-imprisoned fuss. Let the dogs out, feed the dogs, make the coffee, warm the milk, change the diaper, use the bathroom myself, sit down and give her the warm milk while listening to the BBC News and then NPR News. The couch milk wake-up time used to last for 20 glorious minutes. Now it's about 5. I'm holding several stuffed animals by about 10 minutes in. Fortunately, today we waited until 7.30. The rain helps. We've been outside for the last hour. The older dog, Boomy, digs in the mud, while Jojo, the younger one, sniffs for worms but keeps her little paws out of the soggy flora. The toddler and I rake leaves into piles, or should I say I rake, and she stomps through them. At one point, the mud surprises her and she lands stomach down, splayed out, one hand up in the air, cinematically frozen, as if for effect. She's become sure-footed within the last few months, but the slimy mud took her out. Thankfully, she didn't lose it. I helped her up and wiped the mud off her hands. It was a moment that might have caused a pang of frustration or had a domino effect on my temperament on another morning. If I'm not cleaning up after the dogs in the yard and the endless small items that get tossed around throughout the day, it's the pile of dishes, the tower of overstuffed recycling to come packed, or the trash. A domestic life means cleaning up. If you've ever lived in a shared college dorm or with single men under the age of 35, or if you grew up in a messy home, you understand how an unclean place can wear a person down. I grew up in an obsessively clean home, which causes its own neuroses. Clutter slowly eats away at sanity. Those who demand control at all times struggle to handle the disorder of life. Sometimes they become minimalists, living with white walls and few noticeable objects, except for conceptual art, sculptures, or the like. A family life means accepting some level of disorder unless you're bound to develop your own. I can't imagine how great the need for order must be among households with three or four kids. Some of my adult students grew up with eight or nine or ten siblings. My guess is they were called in for dinner. To point out the obvious, rural life is much different than urban or suburban life. Psychologists are concerned about modern parenting patterns for various reasons, but a significant one is a child's freedom to explore. Exploring is messy and requires a parent to let out a longer leash, something that's not easy for me. In the last year, I've had some serious issues dealing with the chaos of it all. The need for quiet at nap time 
turns the frequent case hound bark into a jarring, rage-inducing alarm. The need for sleep becomes desperate and difficult in the late afternoon when dealing with the prospect of teaching an evening class, Monday to Thursday. We balance the parenting life with tag team efficiency while Natasha works her demanding job and I head off for school at 6. We squeeze in time for the park, stroller walks, and dinner in the late afternoons. Winter means early sunsets. Except for occasional visits, we don't have family help. We don't have a full-time nanny or a part-time nanny, or a landscaper, or a house cleaner. But to complain about any of these facts would make me ungrateful and entitled. This is the paradox of parenting. We aren't supposed to be honest about how hard it is. We're supposed to love every moment and see rainbows where others see storm clouds. I'm not complaining, only contextualizing. We sing about rainbows after bath time, but we don't conjure them or ignore the majesty of the actual storm clouds that sometimes gather. This last year has been the most important of my adult life. I love nurturing, teaching, singing, guiding, and generally goofing around with my daughter. Her giggle is pure and contagious. I love watching her with her mama as they read, play, laugh, and learn together. At the same time, the cost to our relationship is real. At times, I've gotten short fuse, irritable, and unbalanced, not zooming out enough to see how my exhaustion affects my behavior. Switching from various modes is tricky. When Natasha comes home, I've had to learn how to step back, but maintain support. When the vast majority of our time at home is spent juggling the needs of our daughter and dogs, it often clouds the relationship. We try to keep in mind that this is all temporary, and we acknowledge each other as often as we can. We decided years ago to try and have one biological child, and now that she's here, we are devoting ourselves fully to this universe. I realize this is a modern privilege, the choice to have a baby, and share all the duties when you are as ready as possible for all that comes with it. Nobody's ever actually ready, but the best preparation is multi-layered, emotional, physical, mental, and of course, financial. And actually wading in to the everyday life of parenting challenges all of those aspects. Back to our muddy morning. Finally, it was time for ecstatic ball chasing in the driveway. Boomy usually gets the outfield grass before dinner. Rebel Harmony becomes equally enthralled as he wags his tail and barks. Jojo won't chase the ball on her own but she's an instinctive cornerback, clutching and grabbing at Boomy as he attempts to receive. In order not to get muddy boots all over me while holding my daughter, and in order for her not to get throttled in the stampede of gray fur, I remove her little black boots. I take off her socks and let her feel the wet concrete under her toes. After ten minutes, we've gotten some of the crazy out of the fur beasts. We walk back inside to the warmth of the kitchen, I soap little hands that are suddenly less baby-like and more kid-like, one at a time, under the faucet at the sink. She giggles when I move on to the bottoms of her feet. Hedwig, the stuffed owl, goes on one last flight, while Boomy humps a soft gray pillow.
Spectrums, November 7, 2019. As I wade through another toddler tantrum, Sunday morning sunshine turns to stormy mental weather. I consider Donald Trump and his senior tantrums, his thumbs and spittle making our messy social media even messier. These tantrums are tantamount to wordless exhortations. Ego spasms so immediate the tantrumy becomes enthralled by his own digital words, thrown into the void of his us-against-them cloud of followers and his continually provoked opposition. No delayed gratification or delay of any kind, instantaneous responses cutting off our oxygen and lighting up our amygdalas. And because we allowed this travesty into the Oval Office, our media continues to report on each mini-tantrum. What most hope to teach their children, how to live with life's limitations, how to compromise, and learn to listen. These values are lost in the present dung-flinging moment. We try to teach our toddler to slow down when the big feelings arise and overwhelm, but she's too young to absorb this. Sometimes counting helps. We count to ten together and some of the potency of her frustration is gone. I remember my older brother's tantrums when I was little. In response to stern orders from my mom, he'd slam his bedroom door shaking our old house. My own tantrums tended to involve shouting and flinging objects. Agitation wasn't something I learned to breathe out when I was young. Mom would say, use your words which was especially useful in elementary school teaching, but not so useful against bullies as I got older. Getting people to lose it can become a game. My retaliation toward my brother's desire to control me or physically dominate was to often provoke him and then use my agility to elude my opponent, as I did in youth basketball and football. Our mom was a teacher and single parent. By then, Ben was 12 or 13, the lack of a father in our house made respect and discipline much more difficult to instill in us, though we did respect my mom. Mom had a few serious boyfriends but chose not to remarry. I can imagine how worn out she was at the end of her long teaching days. She signed us up for every sport the town offered, so we got some of our rambunctiousness out before dinner. Still, we had the afternoons before she got home, and those weekends when we were at mom's house to play with and occasionally terrorize each other. In one particularly memorable episode when I was around eight, I was yelling and screaming about not wanting to do something, and Mom pinned me down, flattening my back so I was on my stomach. She told me she'd get off when I calmed down. I relented for a minute and then girded myself and tried to flip her over, like I tried to my brother in our wrestling matches. Mom was strong. Her aerobic dancing regimen kept her muscles toned and her back sturdy. I lifted Mom a few inches and then fell back towards the carpet. I remember thinking, I'm not sure if I can flip her, but if I do, it might hurt her. Still, she was challenging me physically, and I wanted to see how close I could come to throwing her off my back. I lifted again, pushing with my knees and elbows, and there were a few more inches of daylight, then I relented and caught my breath. Eventually, we both slumped against the bathtub, and I think I started laughing at the insanity of it all, 
which eventually allowed Mom to laugh too. Believe it or not, Mom later recounted that this pinned-down move had been suggested by her therapist, who thought that Mom needed to assert her dominance in order to maintain control of us as we were growing older, more defiant, and rebellious. There's no one correct way to parent. Underneath, we all need safety and security. Now that I'm a father, it's easier to see how important those needs are. That desire to protect our children can be overwhelming and turn us into hovering helicopters. On the other hand, I've observed too many Saturday at the Park dads staring down at their phones while their toddlers roam into actual danger or do something that demands correction. Neither the helicopters nor the oblivious ones are allowing the child to develop in a healthy way. My guess is those dads are the children of parents who like to spout cliches like, well, you turned out okay, to which the obvious reply would be, how would you know? There's no correct way to parent, love, or protect. There is instead an ongoing conversation with your child through the tantrums and the exhilarations, an endless conversation that builds a foundation of trust and the kind of dependability and genuine connection that will later lead to independence. This is another one of the issues with caring for your children, expecting them to go out into the world knowing they'll have to protect themselves, sometimes from their own tantrums. feeling a trip through health psychology adolescence fatherhood relationships and the rocky terrain of emotions March 9th my friend is sick well at least three of my closest friends are sick warning fractions may be unreliable one-third of the Bay Area is sick one-quarter of the United States is sick According to my scientific research, one-eighth of the world's population is sick. We all either have the regular old winter flu, a bad version of the common cold, COVID-19, allergies, a combination thereof, and about 60% of Americans have Trumpitis. I've been mildly sick to flu-ridden for half of the winter. My partner has been sick. Our daughter has been sick several times, too. We're all sick of being sick. We're also tired of being tired. Now with COVID-19, much of the information gathering world is understandably on edge, and the markets are starting to reflect the interconnectedness of the illness, the impact of the illness on economic forces, and the paranoia that's connected to the unknowns related to this new virus. Scaling happiness. Because I care about my friend, after he'd been sick for a day or two, I texted him to see how he was doing Here's our interaction, which has me thinking about how we talk, about how we feel in general. Scale of 1 to 10, how are you feeling? What's normal? 8? I'm at maybe a 6, coming out of it. If your normal is an 8, good for you. Glad you're coming out of it. Rest. Let's not read into normal being great. I'm two points below normal. Thanks. You chose an 8. Most people would probably say 5 or 6 is average. 
I was thinking, if average is 5, then no one would really reach 10. Normal healthy is great. Sex, exercise, and ecstasy might get you up a few points, but not 5. However, one can always feel a little worse. I replied with a list of things that might bring me to a 10, adding to his list, which included food, music, creative flow, not having to work, laughter, Celtics playoff basketball, Red Sox baseball in October. Of course, the best times with my partner and our daughter and dogs bring me up to 10, too, especially when everyone's sleeping peacefully and I can feel the comfort that they feel. Those everyday 10s are harder to notice because they're baked into the everyday struggles and dramas of family life with two full-time working parents, toddlerhood, and not enough stress-free time. Over the last few years, I've subconsciously decided, or consciously adapted, that I won't let myself get down to one, which also means achieving a 10 is mighty difficult. Some might view this as a watered-down version of emotions or of mental fortitude, Perhaps it's simply experience and exhaustion with overanalysis. Perhaps it's the reading and the habits I've formed around finding balance. I don't need a 10. There is no perfection. Erasing that myth is the beginning. Socialization and the flaws of real life. I grew up spending too much time dwelling on the negative. I was a natural perfectionist raised by a mother whose expectations were difficult to meet and who had trouble decompressing from the chaos of single parenting and full-time teaching. My older brother's report card rarely included an A-, and whenever we played a board game or a sport, we were competing, not playing. There was a time in seventh grade when I absolutely needed to have my books lined up perfectly on the desk. I was not a mild obsessive, I was extremely obsessive. One series of scenes, and finally a revelation, is indelibly etched into my mind. My friend would mess with the stack at the corner of my table as he walked by. My need to have the corners lined up, and his need to needle me. Nobody had encouraged me to draw outside the lines. My obsessive compulsiveness was not helping me. It was absorbing my attention and highlighting the flaws all around me, the flaws that make up real life. My friends in elementary school changed dramatically around fourth grade. When boys started to act like little assholes, I couldn't abide it. Two new boys entered the school and the asinine behavior exploded. Maybe it was the sense of justice that rose up in me. I was unafraid to confront others, and after feeling constantly controlled, by my mom and my brother in my home, I wanted to control everybody else. Maybe I just refused to bite my tongue when humiliation became an integral part of adolescence. I went from being a playground and classroom leader and achiever to hating and judging many of my classmates. I kept swinging back and forth from gregarious and whimsical to isolated and miserable throughout my teenage years. The flaws that make up real life were just too gigantic for me not to notice. It was a miracle I didn't become a pothead or heavily medicated in high school. Instead, I found refuge in Mr. D's office. He was one of the school guidance counselors. His open-door policy might have saved me from myself junior year. I remember the paintings of Sedona, Arizona on his wall, the orange, red, and pink hues 
and the ancient rocks. He always had a smile on his face, but not a cheesy one. His was real and empathy filled, the oxygen in the room. As a teacher now, I'm disturbed by the lack of funding for social workers and guidance counselors in public schools. My mom often spoke with Mr. D and always appreciated his efforts. Years later, his own son committed suicide. The man who gave so much of himself to so many teenagers was probably left to question how he missed the signs. The flaws that make up real life sometimes really are gigantic. I had a math teacher in ninth grade who used lots of chalk. In 1995, we didn't have many dry erase boards. We had chalkboards that squeaked and left white powder everywhere. This teacher's navy pants always had a smear of chalk around the pants pocket, where his hand would naturally rest while standing and teaching and walking around the room. The chalk pocket became hard for us not to notice. Basketball ref became my refuge. A few friends became my anchors. Away from the pressures of my house, trips to Harvard Square, eating pizza, buying CDs, playing endless video games, watching the Celtics, finding laughter amidst the chaos and conformity of high school. Restless Minds It's difficult to live with a constantly observing restless mind. There are times the chatter gets too loud, where a mild panic can overtake me in a rushing crowd, or when losing my grip has become overwhelming and occasionally terrifying. My dreams have always been about missing something, losing something, searching for someone, worst case scenarios, in other words, losing control. An active imagination can become overly active and tilt you out of orbit. Maybe it's as simple as my parents were not a great match for each other. My father moving out of our house when I was 18 months old and my parents never forgiving each other added layers of tension. Likely it's a genetic predisposition that was exacerbated by extreme circumstances and tension in my household. Music and exercise have always been ways to keep anxiety down. Writing is the best therapy, other than actual therapy, which I've had off and on for most of my adult life. I've never had a prescription for anxiety. This may be a good thing, but hasn't always made me easy to live with, as my partner knows. If and when you become a parent. All of your own issues become easier to notice and less important if you recognize the importance of raising a child when you become a parent. This is a genuine benefit to all humans. Caring for someone else allows you to forget yourself. Many of my friends over the years are now at this crossroads as we're all turning or have recently turned 40. Most of my friends were raised with a kind of spotlight on themselves that earlier generations weren't raised with. To grow up in the 1980s in the US meant you got a trophy for participating. That isn't a bad thing, but to hear the baby boomers complain about participation trophies tells us more about how unimportant they were taught they were, and implicitly how the children of the 1920s were taught to grin and bear it 
and not to complain about most things. Those of the silent generation experienced the Great Depression and World War II. In general, those men were taught little about emotional development or the need to nurture children. In turn, the women that raised those children of the baby boom were isolated from their spouses, left to seek love and companionship from their children, but without a sense of their own identity behind, beyond motherhood. Beyond motherhood. I teach students from Central America, Brazil, Mexico, East Africa, the Middle East, Tibet, China, India. One of my Chinese students seemed to be the only student in the room without brothers or sisters. She was trying to explain the Chinese government's one-child policy to her classmates from Guatemala and Brazil. They couldn't believe the government would do that. The majority of them come from large families. Even today, rural life in Catholic countries usually means big families. Compare how common having three or more children was in the mid-20th century in the United States to today. My generation, between Generation X and the Millennials, sometimes referred to as Generation Y, are considering whether or not to have one child. Ironically, those younger than us often think even having a child is selfish. The idea of getting beyond yourself is foreign to American individualism in the modern internet age. If I get beyond myself, how will I take pictures? How will I share stories? How will I remain partially connected to those I've been disconnected from? What will my brain do with all of that time? We've created debilitating routines and we have apps to counter some of those routines and limit our youth. Do they bring awareness and shed light on our own mental default to autopilot? Is that enough to fundamentally appreciate the greater world and puncture the force field most of us keep around silence, joy, suffering, spontaneity, and death? Which brings us back to the search for happiness. What is it that keeps us from being content? We're taught not to settle for average, to push ourselves to be the best, to achieve status in a materialistic and individualist society. To become ruthlessly efficient and quantify every aspect of our lives, constantly comparing ourselves to others. We're rarely taught to look out at the natural world and observe all that is around us that might bring us calm and enable a greater sense of collectivism and awareness. We are taught that life is zero-sum rather than seeing a path toward collective progress. This Randian outlook defeats empathy and reduces us to a fear-based, isolated populace prone to manipulation and argument. When you consider the socioeconomic imbalances that have been made plainly visible, the power of outrage and the change in our media consumption that began in the early 90s with talk radio and worsened in the last 15 to 20 years with the explosion of the internet, it's no wonder that American politics has devolved into tribalism as well. If we're accustomed to suburban or urban life, we often reject and are rarely confronted with the rural. If we become educated, we reject the rural and often look down on the working class. And yet, if you take the time to look at a map of the United States, you see how few urban centers exist outside of the coasts 
you know that much of the United States is geographically and in turn culturally rural. The Electoral College gives rural Americans a distinct advantage and enables Republicans to control the Senate, two senators from California, four senators from the Dakotas. Meanwhile, the safety net that used to hold used to hold up those without college degrees or a financial head start is gone. If, as children, we were taught to be kind and cooperative, we cannot understand or abide this modern socioeconomic filtering that has erased the middle class, thrown the average American under our current economic bus, and made visible the myth of the American dream. And yet, the majority of Americans who want a new path cannot come close to agreeing on what that path should look like. We resort to choosing a candidate out of fear, outrage, or both. All that we cannot control. I haven't learned how to give up control. Despite years of conscious effort, my subconscious still often wins. Our daughter is two years and nine months old. I have to remind myself constantly to let her figure it out. I feel as if I'm always cleaning up. I'm always putting things back or picking things up. I encourage her to help. Sometimes she does. Life is messy. Dog poop dries in the grass, which grows and wants to be mowed. Weeds grow and want to be pulled. In November, the leaves fall and want to be swept. In March, the blossoms arrive, then fall and want to be swept. It is calm now. The sun is back after taking several days off. Too often, I tell our daughter what she is doing is not safe. Children need boundaries, I tell myself. My partner doesn't react how I react. She was given more latitude throughout her childhood. I have suffocated her at times over the two decades of our relationship. I haven't allowed myself to breathe first before reacting. Parenting can often feel like damage control. The urge to document everything is another form of control, but I won't delve into that. Silliness and play are so important to children. I try to bring that as often as I have the energy to. She will grow up. She will learn. She will become herself, regardless of our attempts. For me, the roller coaster of parenting has also been healing, adjusting my expectations and getting out of my own head, closer to my own heart, understanding the pain that I rarely confronted in my depressed years, losing self-consciousness and singing. Infants and toddlers are always in the moment, for better or worse. We are healthy. We are lucky. There is a world full of suffering and joy, disease and health, and it will be there tomorrow. But for now, let's appreciate what we have and recognize how much work we have to do. That was written a week before everything closed down on March 9th, 2020. <laughs> On Creativity, Stillness, Time, and Patterns, April 14th, 2020, one month into the pandemic in the U.S. A response to Alan Lightman's The Coronavirus is Changing Who We Are. 
Alan Lightman writing at the Atlantic, with some degree of freedom from our time-driven lives also comes increased creativity. Psychologists have long known that creativity thrives on unstructured time, on play, on non-directed, divergent thinking, on unpurposed ramblings through the mansions of life. This passage speaks to how difficult creativity can become when people live according to the gods of efficiency and quantification. By overstructuring our lives and our children's lives, we risk burying our or their imaginations under layers of goal setting and a constant struggle with productivity. I was raised by a mother who spent her teenage and college years with creativity integral to her life and identity and continued to use her imagination and creativity in her second grade classroom. But on a personal level, the need to be productive won and the need for play for unstructured time and for strolls in nature lost. A walk became a power walk. Letting go of time and direction has been a requirement of life with my daughter in her first three years. The awareness of time and stress come with having to plan out the late afternoons, deal with dinner, and getting out the door right after dishes to teach my own class. Lightman. Habits of mind and lifestyle do not change easily. Without noticing, we slowly slip into the routines of our lives, like becoming so accustomed to living on a noisy street that we cannot remember our previous neighborhood and a time of silence. Some powerful force must strike to awaken us from our slumber. Now we have been struck. We have a chance to notice. We have been living too fast. We have sold our inner selves to the devil of speed efficiency, money, hyper-connectivity, quote, progress. I think of this as autopilot. This situation, the world on pause, has allowed me to simplify my life. For the last three weeks, my hours are set by daddy duty, 6.15 or 6.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. Those hours aren't always easy, but they allow me to escape the unending flow of COVID-19 news and the monotony and anxiety of sheltering with uncontrollable forces that mess with one's mind and can induce paranoia and panic. I love the Celtics and the NBA and the Red Sox and Major League Baseball, but without the constant stream of sports behind the daily goings-on of life, things are simpler. I'm not checking the phone unless I'm communicating or listening to a podcast or music. I'm not involved in a competition or thinking about competition. At the same time, I miss watching the Celtics. I'll miss the NBA playoffs, and I miss the opening of the MLB season. It's a different life with massive restrictions on where we go, what entertainment means, and an opportunity to really decide what is important to us. On a health note, I found that if I read about the cellular science of the virus or the protective behavior suggestions, especially before bed, I can start triggering my own panic and feelings of anxiety I used to get stuck in. I'm a recovering hypochondriac who had experiences with real sickness at times over the last few years. It's a strange thing to have been sick frequently since last summer. Two separate stomach viruses, sinus stuff, colds, and then hand, foot, and mouth from preschool, and then what was likely this virus just for the last few months. 
Lightman. A momentous but little discussed study at the University of Hertfordshire in collaboration with the British Council found that the walking speed of pedestrians in 34 cities across the world increased by 10% just in the 10-year period from 1995 to 2005. So this study showed that people are walking faster all over the world in the last in, from 95 to 2005. Walking around the block in our hilly suburban town, I walk slowly with my dogs. One is older and sometimes limps. The other has a very thick coat and hates bright sunshine and any temperature over 65 degrees. I've spent the last few years walking a stroller in circles around this block. Nothing about these walks is efficient, but I've appreciated them, even when I'm exhausted and trudging up the sidewalk. I agree with Lightman that slowing down our body will slow down our mind, and it's much needed in our modern culture. I think compassion grows from slowing down and noticing the natural world, noticing the people we connect with, and ignoring our clocks. Lightman. But now we have been struck, with many workplaces shut down, with restaurants and movie theaters and printing shops and department stores closed, now that many of us spend the 24 hours of each day sequestered in the small caves of our own homes, suddenly we find ourselves alone with our thoughts. Excluded here are such people as the heroic workers in health care and in grocery stores and parents with young children or elderly relatives needing constant attention. At home, time and space have opened up in our minds. I can't imagine how different these days might be if I wasn't immersed in the attention demands and bodily demands of being with a nearly three-year-old. I'm alone with my thoughts at the end of the day. They become words or music or conversation. I'm worried that teaching on Zoom will alter that over the next few months. On the other hand, I hope it'll get new conversations rolling and support the students and the classroom community I've built throughout this year. Lightman. By inner self, I mean that part of me that imagines, that dreams, that explores, that is constantly questioning who I am and what is important to me. My inner self is my true freedom. My inner self roots me in me and to the ground beneath me. The sunlight and soil that nourish my inner self are solitude and personal reflection. When I listen to my inner self, I hear the breathing of my spirit. Those breaths are so tiny and delicate. I need stillness to hear them. I need slowness to hear them. I need vast, silent spaces in my mind. I need privacy. Without the breathing and the voice of my inner self, I am a prisoner of the frenzied world around me. A beautiful description of the internal life, the inner self, the soul, truth, all that is unbound by time or technology we're all yearning for those breaths, for that sense of a still mind. Our news cycle keeps many wrapped in a restless mind. Fear and addictive habits keep us scrolling, and our brains, wired to latch on to and solve problems, often create problems that don't need to exist. 
Digging into the self doesn't need to lead to despair. It can lead to a wider horizon. Lightman. In the 1830s, the fast new communication device was the telegraph, which could relay information at about 3 bits a second. That speed rose to about 1,000 bits a second in the mid-1980s with the advent of the Internet. Today, the rate is 1 billion bits a second. The resulting increase in productivity in the workplace, coupled with a time-equals-money equation, has led to our acute awareness of the commercial and goal-oriented uses of time. Think of how frustrating it can be when a website doesn't load and think of how useless all those tiny moments of frustration are. Maybe we'll come out of all this with a better sense of how to wait, a renewed sense of patience. Time Passing with Child December 3rd, 2020 Newborn to six months. What is time? It's an idea. Time's naturally divided into sleeping and waking. For these six months, time will stretch and contract. Time's elasticity will take on a new, more intimate meaning. One may wonder about the past and the way clocks dictate much of our lives today. One may research the history of coordinated time while a baby dozes on your chest. One may consider that only when the railroad connected humans across long distances did the idea of the clock begin to matter. Six months to one year. Time is broken into weeks and months, milestones and month stickers stuck on a wall. How old is Daddy? How old is Mama? Older than they used to be, and no longer thinking about their age, except when they get up off the floor. All the books give us more information than we need. Does it help to know that it's going to be another extra fussy week because of what's happening in the brain? What's happening in your brain? What's happening in my brain? Where's my mind? One year to two years. Time shifts into a woozy blur. Teeth grow, knifing their way through gums, millimeter by millimeter. When I'm tired, my decaying tooth, the one that was chipped in gym class in third grade, the nerve begins to throb. The time to move, walk at 10 months, walk at 12 months, 13 months. The toddler who won't walk becomes a problem, and the toddler who will walk becomes a problem. Wobbling becomes walking, becomes bumping into everything. Through an observant parent's eyes, everything becomes a potential danger. Time ebbs and flows. Figuring out how to manage work and family time becomes important. Time slips faster than ever before. Two years to three and a half years. Getting to the end of the day becomes harder. Sleep becomes slippery. 
naps and nap time, and timers for every transition. As the toddler absorbs the power of NO! The parent's ability to manage time weakens. As the pandemic has done its best to stop time entirely, parents have drifted into a swamp of hours. Searching for driftwood or floaties, really anything to hold on to, time bubbles up and belches. At first we counted the weeks of quarantine, then the months. Soon it will be a year. We search for dates on a calendar to maintain a sense of the passage of the days. Thank goodness preschool reopened, and they've stayed rigorous in their approach to health. Gratitude is overwhelming on Monday morning drop-off. The Future The sky lightens at dawn, the sun all of its 93 million miles away, somehow stays in the sky, then it appears to fall again. Time will remain elusive and theoretical. Days in a week, weeks in a month, months in a year. To keep the mind from getting ahead of itself is the impossible trick. Finding the present is never easy. When will the vaccine arrive? When will the coastal cities sink into the oceans? Will college even exist in 2035? Keeping oneself in the present, never easy. The Wonder Despite the exhaustion, the moments of unexpected joy and wonder will sustain the parent, if the parent lets them. At 4.32 a.m., an hour after the three-year-old has crawled into bed and snuggled under the warm comforter, but not fully settled, and thus has kept the parent from returning completely back to sleep. The child may say, I love you, Daddy. We live in this home together. He was not a typewriter. He was the type of writer who sat down to read a book, then stopped reading after a paragraph or maybe a page, and began writing. He wasn't a great reader. He was the type of writer who tried to keep a schedule, but the only creative schedule he could keep was the one which refused to obey the limits of minutes and had to be sandwiched between the hours whenever possible. He was the type of writer whose childhood included a combination of divorce, good public schooling, enrichment activities, high expectations, lost friendships, paralyzing self-consciousness, solitude, perfectionism, academic success, athletic achievement, competition, anxiety, depression, and never-ending self-awareness that ensured his adulthood would demand he grapple with neurotic tendencies, bouts of mania, mild cynicism, depression, friendship, creativity, laughter, philosophical and psychological curiosity, and a deep desire for connection. He was the type of writer who was interested in new forms of writing. He was the type of writer who changed over time. Probably this is true of all writers who keep writing. 
As a late teenager, he wrote with a need for validation and attention. In college, he wrote with an obsessive eye for detail and character, but seemed incapable of managing a plot. In his mid-twenties, he wrote poems designed to help him dig out from underneath the weight of it all. By his late twenties and into his thirties, he wrote memoir and started crafting short essays about anything at all that was based in reality. His writing improved as he became less precious and more honest. He wrote a blog about basketball for a while, some analysis, some description, some of everything NBA-related, some non-sequiturs, some nonsense, some fun stuff. Then he realized it wasn't going to lead to a journalistic career, and soon after realized that was probably a good thing. That most NBA-related writing had become saturated with metrics and analytics, and that the writing itself was either dry and mostly serious or extra goofy. In his late thirties, he wrote poems again, as life and fatherhood demanded a mystical or metaphysical approach. Poetry and sleep deprivation go together. Now that sleep was more frequent again, he was attempting short fiction, lyrics, more poems, all kinds of things. Time remained elusive. He was not a typewriter. He was the type of writer whose mom was a writer when she was in college, but that was the mid-60s, and she didn't have children, or a teaching job, or a marriage, or a divorce, or a house, or doctor's appointments, or any of those things that keep adults from pursuing creative dreams, like writing poetry. He was the type of writer who realized that submitting his writing to contests, reading fees, and prize money was probably foolish. But he had a few friends who convinced him to bother. He submitted something recently to one of those contests and realized after submitting it and paying the reading fee that his poem was actually really good. He let the whimsical moment take over. Now there were only a few months to wait before receiving the likely rejection. Yes, he was rejected. One winner and hundreds of rejections. Was the prize money the reason he bothered submitting that anybody bothered submitting? Was it the possible sense of validation? Was it just because he'd stopped being precious about the whole thing that the rejection wouldn't matter much anymore? Submitting was odd. Submit. Give up. Resign yourself. White flag of surrender. There will always be people looking to take your money and then judge. Or worse, take your money and then ignore the work because judging means reading and then ignoring almost all of the work. There will always be people looking to win something, searching for some vague sense of accomplishment. He was the type of writer that kept writing. Life was more interesting that way. Watching Six Feet Under 16 Years Later February 16th, 2021 When I was 21, I was falling apart. 
Through the end of high school and the beginning of college, I was held together by duct tape and safety pins. In the years leading up to 2001, I appeared to be doing all right, but in truth I was a discombobulated mess. I was determined to live in the moment, but unable to let go of fear or self-consciousness. I needed to get out from under my childhood. I had no real trust in myself. I fell in love, and then I gradually saw myself falling apart. After working in a restaurant and a bakery and a supermarket, and paying off student loans, I moved to the Bay Area to start over and finish school. A year later, Natasha joined me. We moved in together, and after three painful years of long-distance connections, we started a real connection. She had her degree, and I was finally back on a path toward mine. We were 24. During those in-between miserable years, when I most needed to puncture the numbness, I turned to music or indie films. I was seeking art that expressed the sometimes unbearable weight of existence and made something beautiful out of our existential angst. Six Feet Under debuted on HBO in June 2001. It immediately resonated with me. I watched it with friends who were finishing college near Boston while I worked my terrible restaurant job, paid off my debt, and desperately tried to fight off the sense of failure that surrounded me. I listened to music like it was medicine. I measured time by my monthly weekend visits to Connecticut to be with Natasha and form a cocoon around reality, temporarily inside the university bubble I'd left behind. Why Six Feet Under? The show was centered around an absence that I knew too well. It begins with a fatal car crash. The father, Nathaniel Fisher, who runs the family funeral home, is now gone, but he consistently reappears throughout the show as a projection of the inner thoughts of his children. My parents were divorced when I was an infant. I never knew my father in our house, but I knew him in his house, which we visited every other weekend. So I knew what it was like to have a father who was both gone and sometimes there. In the show, the two sons are left to run the business while the younger daughter is still in high school. The older son is a rebel, the younger son is a good boy, and the youngest daughter, the baby, is an artist. All three of these characters resonated with me. The anxious mother, Czech, acts almost like a common enemy for the three children to rally around. In the first season, the question of what each character wants to do with their life bubbles up continually. Six Feet Under was fundamentally about searching, how we are endlessly searching for a place of comfort and safety, how easy it is to see the world as a cruel and threatening place, and how an antidote to that suffering is the ongoing acceptance that we are mortal beings, so we may as well enjoy life while we're here. That life is fleeting, and that we should honor each day by laughing and connecting to the deeper truths, in spite of the chaos. In light of the last year, that need to honor each day is more critical than ever. Initially, commentators debated whether or not the show was a drama or a comedy. Today, the need for categories falls to the side. It's telling that the divisions between genres are less of an issue 20 years later. 
the anti-heroes of television have become the heroes. Good writing and indelible characters explore life by exploring comedy in the midst of tragedy. Alan Ball's artistic vision from American Beauty through Six Feet Under opened up possibilities for his characters by refusing to cast judgment upon their behaviors, however questionable. Through psychological depth, background attention toward childhood experience, and humor, his characters are given reasons to lash out at the world, but are never given free passes from the consequences of their actions. We are all just flailing around in the dark, searching for something. The show's driving ethos was empathy and generosity. Many people are afraid to look at a dead body or to discuss grief in general. Rather than accept mortality, our culture often ignores it. Our pharmaceutical industry denies it. Our cosmetic industry wants it covered up. Aging becomes a problem rather than a reality of life. We simultaneously embrace the concept of YOLO, you only live once, and refuse to let that one life end. With money and pills, today's 60-year-olds believe they're middle-aged. Their mantra, you're only as old as you feel. This isn't to say everyone over 70 should just give up and perish, but it highlights the avoidance of death that has been baked into modern American life. Then comes a pandemic that will ultimately end the lives of over 500,000 Americans. The question remains, has our collective outlook on mortality changed? Do we view life as more precious than we did a year ago? Are we able to incorporate the reality of these deaths into our lives? Or is it simply a number on a screen? The number acts as documentation, but it also pushes mortality into math. The last year has been a year spent inside for many of us. That means binge-watching and an endless stream of images on screens. I haven't watched that much, and I haven't read nearly as much as I expected or hoped to. I've been running after a three-year-old. I've been starting this podcast. I've been writing. I've been teaching. And I've been trying to sleep. I rarely want to rewatch anything, but I knew I'd want to rewatch Six Feet Under at some point. I'm glad I waited 15 years. The truth of how difficult it is to be human isn't easily created. The truth of how we're constantly becoming who we are, regardless of age or circumstance. The world of Six Feet Under is a world of uncomfortable and unending truths. It's always worth re-entering. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast or my writing in general, uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com. That's buy, like purchase, me a coffee.com slash Jonah asks. It's a great way to support. Thank you.